0: Drawing from the Well is a podcast series from the youth wellness movement. We are educators, researchers, healers, parents and community members striving to repurpose schools to address the critical wellness gaps in our youth's development, founded by Community Responsive Education.
1: Hi, this is Manny Martinez. A specific learning experience that I've been reflecting on a lot since last year, especially during distance learning, for me as an educator, and especially implementing ethnic studies in my practice, has to do with relationships. I've always been good at establishing pretty solid trusting relationships with young folk. And I mean like toddlers, like kinder kids, teenagers, even young adults. Right, And my life experience has proven this to be a fact, not simply my personal opinion, right? People who've known me all my life, my siblings, my nieces and nephews and their kids, parents who shared how good I am with their kids or how much their teenagers really like me or respect me or whatever. Some actual adults whom I've known since they were a lot younger. And plus, I'm also banking on testimonials from like, countless recorded teacher observation feedback forms I've accumulated through the years. And I know this particular knack has something to do with my disarming skill of being able to make them laugh, you know, either by not taking myself too seriously or simply by being relatable and funny, which I can do, which I tend to do. But I also know it's because they can sense that I genuinely care about them that knack, that ability to establish those kinds of relationships with young people, has forever served foundational in what I used to call classroom management. You know, making sure everybody's doing what is expected of them and that nothing too wild and crazy and disrespectful is happening in the space, you know? But this knack also helped me create space for my growth as a teacher. By listening to students and their families getting to know about their lives outside of school etc but those expectations that i just mentioned the system's expectations of what our students should and shouldn't be doing or saying what is deemed appropriate academic or classroom behavior and the like those were my expectations too and because of it If those expectations were not being met in my eyes, I didn't always react to students in the healthiest ways, meaning in ways that took their sense of wellness into account. I mean, if student wellness is to be cultivated and sustained through healthy relationships, that are truly responsive to the lived experiences and the historical and material conditions that shape our students, then I was getting some of that right. But I was getting some of it quite wrong. See, in the way I sometimes reacted to what I deemed inappropriate or defiant or non-compliant behavior, if we're gonna be completely honest, whether it be using a judgmental or aggressive tone in my voice, or threatening to call home, or school security, or student dean, or what have you, or asking them to leave my classroom. I know that in doing those things, I realize now that I wasn't always being responsive to my students' lived experiences. And I don't know if this is irony or whatever, but as an English teacher using an ethnic studies framework, I was conscious of the historical and material conditions that shaped my students and their families. I was conscious of this. I just wasn't being fully responsive to said conditions, if that makes sense. So preparing for distance learning and building my ethnic studies curriculum around texts like STAMPED And we want to do more than survive and concepts of conscientization and anti-racism and historical trauma last year. I found myself really, really thinking about issues and systems that are still preventing marginalized peeps from moving forward. And more importantly, my role in that prevention, in that perpetuation of unjust and inequitable practices. So, yeah, I came into this profession thinking that because of my life experience, you know, because I'm an OG for, you know, POC from NYC. I've studied Freire and Hooks and Dewey and Emerson and Fanon and Baldwin. And because of all those things, I thought I could never really be part of the problem, right? That I was actually part of the solution, which is why I got into this profession to begin with. But I was blinded by my own self-righteousness to see how I'd been an accomplice in helping this educational system do exactly what it was built to do in preventing marginalized peeps from thriving. I was complicit and truth be told, in a way, I still am simply by association, simply by being in a classroom within this educational system, within this country. So it hit me hard during a conversation with another ethnic studies teacher who shared how disappointed she was with a student who chose to go by a more anglicized pronunciation of their name rather than the Spanish pronunciation. I'm not even gonna get into like what exactly that was, but I know that this teacher expressed how she let that student know of her disappointment, citing colonization and what have you. So I left feeling how Shaming our students in any way, shape, or form in order to have them understand our personal opinions, or even in order to convey how important or critical we think something is, is exactly a colonized way of doing things. Making our students feel bad or ashamed is a colonizer's tool, period. I mean, I'm still struggling with the grading system, but I'm feeling that we are conveyors of pertinent information and facilitators of dialogue and discussion that can be transformational for our students, not banking educators or judges of character. My personal opinion. I've reflected on my role in my students' wellness as an agent within an oppressive system. I have not compromised my expectations for my students, but now I am constantly checking my tone Checking my words, checking my body language, and I do my absolute best in letting my students know that I love them every day, that my love is non-judgmental and unconditional in a world where they are constantly being judged, shamed, ridiculed, and underestimated, all while conveying the information I believe they need to thrive for a happy, healthy life. That's what's up. Peace. Welcome to Drawing
2: from the Well. I'm your host, Tiffany Marie. Today's episode centers ethnic studies. You just heard from educator Manny Martinez, who emphasized the significance of trusting relationships. Next up, you hear from youth expert Lorenzo, who shares about his experiences learning his indigenous language and the healing that came with that for him and his family. And for our Mic Check 1-2-3 segment, we have the one and only teacher extraordinaire, Art Nelson Concordia, who's gonna talk to us about the history of ethnic studies, some of the challenges in getting it implemented in the state of California and the new direction for it
3: if we are to take it seriously in schools. My name is Lorenzo Jones and up until high school, I never learned anything about my culture. Whether it would be about where my grandmother came from or even my pre-colonized ancestors, I was never told or educated in these parts of my history. When I first took a look on the classes about learning Nawa, the language of my ancestors, it felt surreal, like I was taking something back that was denied for me for so long. I survived centuries of colonization, genocide, and the rape of a culture and its people, but it never stopped managing to move forward. It was really especially inspiring to experience this with my classmates as well, who were also my close friends. And it really felt like it was community building, like we were bringing back the community and culture that was destroyed long ago and was being denied to us. It was pretty challenging at first, but I did not want to stop. I was extremely determined to keep going. I did not want to let this die out. I felt like this was something I wanted to carry on, and it was something that I did not want to let disappoint my ancestors. I really wanted to honor my ancestors in the strongest way I could, and I felt like this was one of the strongest ways to be able to take back the language that was trying to be destroyed and strengthen it by teaching it to others like my brothers and my mom and my grandma, who didn't even know this was a language to begin with. I even used Nawa at my high school graduation and my acceptance speech. After my speech, I sang a song in Nawa. It went, Well, that's just a part of the chorus, but the song is about how community and family was a really big aspect of the culture that we come from. And this is something that I will never take for granted. This is something I extremely encourage anybody who can and has the ability to, to learn about their own language. It doesn't have to be Nawa, but wherever you come from, I please, like, really encourage you to learn about your own language. Because this is something that helped me get closer to who I am, helped me build more better relationships with my family, and overall just feel, like, more connected to myself. I feel like everybody deserves a right to have the ability to carry on their own legacy and be proud of who you are and where you come from.
2: Here, Mike Check, one, two, three, with just Jewel, and Tiffany hey. Marie. We got uh, with Peace. us the one and only Art Nelson Concordia, y'all.
0: Greetings. Great to be here.
2: Thanks for supporting us and being willing to talk with us today. But tell us a little bit more about you and where you come
0: from. I was just sharing with Jewel and Kendris. I was born and raised in Los Angeles, in Cheong land. But my folks and my ancestors come from the so-called Philippines, very far away, ocean away, specifically from the Tagalog people or the Tagalogs, the people of the shore. And my family has been in California since the sixties. Grew up in Echo Park, working class immigrant. And my childhood like lies squarely in the eighties, eighties LA, which is a different thing than what it is now. And that was very much formative, very much responsible for how I see and be in the world. But uh, I'm a father. I got four kids. (laughs) That is in the present very much what this is very focused on, in addition to being a husband and a teacher, educator, all community grounded. I can keep going, but I don't know. Maybe that's a little bit of a snapshot in the now of me.
2: I appreciate you sharing that. You share a little bit about being... a Father, partner, uh, educator. What does your week look like? <laughs>
0: what do you spend a majority of your time doing? We got Tagalog classes. We got flag football. We got soccer on top of the eight to six job, parenting, cleaning, cooking, laundry, <laughs> and connecting all of that, right? <laughs> I got twins, at eight years old. And a nine-year-old, they might as well be triplets. Mm. The twins are very large people. Not that the nine-year-old is small, but they're large. So they look like they're all the same age. And as they get older, there's this real, real clear release of responsibility on my end. So that's the part we're trying to figure. Mm. It's not always the smoothest, but there's progress and co-parenting them with Paloma, my wife, is a big deal. We're really, really fortunate to be able to do that multi-generationally. I live with my in-laws, my wife's folks. Mm -hmm. It's a trip because I live in Oxnard and I never thought of this place as the place that I would see myself in and raising a family in. And it's only about an hour away from my folks in LA. We're near, but we're also kind of doing this thing in a place where we're having to rebuild or create community and connect with folks. That in and of itself has been great because the place is amazing. Mm-hmm. And so much opportunity to connect.
2: Mm-hmm. I learned about Oxnard from uh, Anderson
0: Pack. That's what I was. Saying. <laughs> yeah, it's a thing. Oxnard. Like people from Oxnard love their town, and I get it. Yeah. There's so much to love about it. That's
2: what's up. Uh, I know about you from the Bay Area. Matter of fact, I thought you were still in the Bay Area. That's how much I connect you to the Bay Area and to what Balboa and experiences out here. But like a lot of folks, you know, I, I've shared before. You're kind of a, a household name. That's why I call you art. It's <laughs> <laughs> say certain curriculum. They like say art. Like that's the name that come up. But how did you even start working with young people? Like, what were some of the experiences that influenced you getting into this work with young people? You know,
0: before teaching, twenty three years ago, like going into teaching twenty three years ago. I was an organizer down here in LA in the Filipino community, Echo Park community, and it was very much focused on bringing youth together, like raising awareness, getting them organized, and moving them to some kind of action. Like that was a big part of my late teens and 20s, which led to like some incredible, I think, growth for myself, but then a burnout, like feeling like I'm exerting all these calories, exerting all this energy and effort. And though there's clear victories in the relationships you develop and you see people, you know, participating. But I don't feel like, wow, it's got to be a better use of my effort. And so then I had a buddy I went to undergrad with who's from the Bay and he went back to the Bay. He became a teacher, among many other things. Victor Diaz, he runs Renegade Running out of Oakland now.
2: Victor. Victor was one of my teachers at
0: Upward Bound. So this is the thing, because he said, "Hey, I teach at a school called Leadership. And there's this opportunity at USF, you and our buddy Mike and Jason, former roommates, right? He was like, come up. And I was like, not feeling what I was doing, even though it was really meaningful. But I, I was like, all right. Decided within a week, applied, got accepted, and moved that summer. And I was like, okay, I'm gonna go teach. Mm. Like very much connected to youth development. Maybe this is like a direct way that I could be more impactful. And it was a total opposite. (laughs) Like that world, not being prepared to do it justice just led to a lot more strife and struggle and burnout. So I ended up actually leaving teaching after Mm -hmm. three years. The first three years I was burnt out, went back into nonprofit. My second stint with teaching really was I did it for the money. I was doing nonprofit work with the organization called Soul, also based out there in Oakland, uh, School of Unity and Liberation. And my partner at the time, we got pregnant and I was like, dang, we don't have health insurance. How are we going to afford this? And so I was like, "All right, I'll go back into teaching. Hmm. That's kind of what led me back. And from there, I think that's where really things took off. I think having the time away and then really linking with people like practitioners, trying to figure it out in that late 90s, early 2000s context is the starting point of the work I'm doing now, I think.
4: Mm -hmm.
0: But Tiffany, you know, I feel like I'm sure we've shared space with hundreds of other people. I don't think I've ever met you in person. And this is the smallest context we've associated, but I feel like I know you and your name gets brought up in space. It's like, oh yeah, Tiffany from Laud to Cam to Allison. I'm like, man, I gotta meet this person. And then you reach out with invitation. I'm like, ooh, a little nervous, but a little honored.
2: You know what though? You know what's deep? I just feel like we gotta get this out. I used to have beef with you. I used to have beef with you back in the day before I even knew really? you. Yeah, you didn't even know I had beef no. with you. Look, this is what happened. Right. Let me tell you. We can cut this out oh if it's God. too controversial, but I like juicy stuff. Same. Okay, look. So you talk about Victor, right? So I'm an upper bound. I was a student upper bound at USL. And Vic's class, it was dope because I haven't had a teacher like that. And he was weird. He had us just writing about like our experiences, our lived experiences. Man, that essay was I'm scared to even share that. I can't believe somebody had me at fifteen writing like that. He was a great teacher. He' was a really, really good teacher. And so I actually went back to work for that program. And in the program, I'm not even gonna say no names, but I'm this, this is about why I had beef with you. I don't have beef with you now, but I'm gonna tell you what. So I had a student who was one of your students okay. at the time. And so they were coming back and forth between my classroom in the summertime. And then in the fall, they was in your class, and they were a senior in your class. And so I'm working with them at late at night, and they didn't pass your class. They didn't pass your class. And they actually didn't end up graduating from high school. I was hot. And it was deep because I kept hearing your name, I kept hearing your name. And I'm like, from this student, I'm like, who is this dude? Like that dude? No. <laughs> nah, no. What's even deeper is that they really liked you. They really, really liked you. And so it hit them. It hit them. And so I'm like, man, whatever. You know what I mean? They didn't graduate from high school. They're in a doc program right now, which is actually really interesting. But, you know, years pass and folks are like, yo, you gotta meet this dude. You gotta meet this dude. And I'm like, that's what's up. Because I at that time I was studying Bay Area's finest, you know? And your name kept being in the conversation. And it was amongst mentors, so I couldn't say nothing but deep in my heart. I was like, man, if that's the (laughs) same dude. But what's so deep to me is that I thought I was doing a thing in the Bay Area, and I was killing the game. And I met a student on a bar train recently in the past three years. I was feeling myself. I was like, well, this is going to be great when I saw them. And they were like, what's up, Tim? And I was like, hey, what's up? And we was talking, and I just knew I was about to get celebrated. They were like... I'll never forget you gave me a C. <laughs> and that's really when my beef with you really dissolved, like real talk. Oh, oh. Cause I thought about you and I thought oh. about how I felt about you, about that student. And, and it was deep how energy is exchanged, where I'm experiencing a very similar reality where they're like, you talking all this talk, you're teaching these things, and then you put a grade attached to my experiences, mm-hmm. my energy mm-hmm. in that space. And I really was like, I got to leave dude alone. <laughs> like, I really thought about you, for real. And it's so interesting that when people talk about ethnic studies particularly, that's where your name yeah. comes up. And that's where my yeah. name comes up. Yeah. And I'm like, wow. We both have these really interesting histories. And I'm always interested in where people are, because I think sometimes we like, you might still be in that space. I don't know. But when that student was talking to me, and I saw their energy around how I was using grades and associating it, with the work, actually the spiritual
0: mm-hmm.
2: activity that I was asking mm-hmm. them to engage in, I was attaching grades to that, that's something that yeah. I'm not proud of necessarily, yeah. but I'm interested to hear from you, like, yeah, yeah. just hearing that, Like, how does that land with oh, you? Oh,
0: yeah. I always think about those earlier years of teaching. If that first three years was terrible, that first three years back, which I think is locating that 2006, 2007 period where I didn't know how to do the thing. I had no mentors outside of Vic in terms of developing a different mm-hmm. way to connect with our young people and to teach them within this system. I think that 2006, 2007 class still precedes the ethnic studies work that we started developing. And so that mm-hmm. art right there, I think if that young person appreciated me, it was because of the relationships and connections. Mm-hmm. And they were hurt by me in terms of my place of where I was developing or how I was maldeveloped as an educator and then exacting Mm -hmm. that on them. Hmm. And so I'm really uncomfortable with this attention or this, like I've heard that before. Oh, Art Nelson, ethnic studies, you're the one I need to talk to. And I'm like, am I? I mean, yeah, I am. And I don't want to be ever kind of projected as this person that is doing the thing in perfection, like the whole Mm -hmm. path to this point. And I also don't want to like, tear myself down. I think we were doing things that are significant. Mm -hmm. That's not where I started. (laughs) I've come a long way. Mm -hmm. And then that's never been an individual process. Like to get to this place is one of community and collective. I really appreciate you bringing that back and presenting that in this space. I want to know who the student is. I do. And I don't know (laughs) if if they're a doc student. Oh God, like that journey. Yeah. You could check in with them. If you can't share now, but they gonna hear this interview. interview.
2: They gonna, you know what? Yeah. though? They wouldn't have no problem telling because uh, they're a pretty <laughs> prominent, nationally acclaimed hey. poet laureate now. The student is Sojari Bradley. So Sojari,
0: I love Sojari.
1: Wow. Yeah, yep, yep.
2: And you know, it's deep because we all have these experiences, right? We have all these experiences. <sighs> Jar was on the the last season. Jari wouldn't have no problem with me sharing it. I just think it's a deep story. It is. It connects us. Yeah. And the other student who I gave a C to, Cindy <laughs> Kane, they're these prolific, profound, uh, nationally known artists that I think in our infancy as educators, yeah, we didn't know what to do with the fullness of their beings.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, no. and
2: school is way too small to assess, let alone make sense of no way. who we had in front of us. But I think yeah. it's important I feel like people who are elevated, they don't get these spaces of deep reflection. And I was like, man, I talked to there Art Nelson. Is. We, we just is. don't do it. And I'm not even going to come at you. I'm going to come at us about how we started this work. But I think yeah. I appreciate the, like you said, the full circle. Mm-hmm. Also, those grades and grading was not the end of their story either. Yeah. It definitely impacted their stories. It impacted their notions of self. Yeah. yeah. But it's yeah. also like there were yeah. external... Organizations and communities that were holding and supporting them as we were growing in our work with young people. And, you know, it's deep because you are known in the realm and culture of ethnic studies. You are well known. And that speaks also to your transformation, your trajectory as a practitioner. And mm. I'm interested in um, just hearing a little bit from you and like, how did you come into this work around? ethnic studies and like what is it to you and why is it important yeah. like how did you get here and why has it held you this long
0: in terms of ethnic studies my background with the organizing work like i think i was coming into learning about ethnic studies from it's really radical root when you talk about third world liberation and i'm still very much in support of work around the national liberation movement in the philippines
2: mm-hmm.
0: and I was led to that movement because of my introduction of the Black Panther Party. And their real sense of connection outside of the borders of the United States. And that black liberation was tied to all people's liberation, and that there's a world of struggle happening. So the Panthers, along with Malcolm, really captured me, at like the freshman year of community college. And I was like, what's the equivalent for my own community? And then that's actually what led me to getting involved with the work within the Filipino community. Come to learn that there's this movement, right Third World Liberation movement is multinational, right not multiracial, but it's an expression of a multinational movement of internal colonies to the people kind of representing the internal mm-hmm. oppressed nations inside the borders of the United States.
2: Yeah.
0: And that what we're experiencing is, yeah, racism, yes, but it's actually oppressed nations. Of course, I'm like into revolutionary nationalist politics or intercommunalist politics, as Huey developed. And that was my angle, like as an organizer, like wanting to go into schools. I was like, this is how we're going to move young people into action, right? Really kind of share the history, share the longstanding solidarity across communities, and then that'll kind of motivate them to engage first itself, and then outward.
4: Mm-hmm.
0: That didn't work. <laughs> there's no, no pedagogy. There is, you know, it just... Fast forwarding to ethnic studies, I was doing my individual thing trying to teach a radical history. I have history, social studies background. But lacking just the pedagogy, my kids are just totally asleep. And it became like really developing relationships with them, which I brought in from my organizing background, that would keep some kind of attention Right, But eventually it would wane. And then within the confines of my own training and the system, I was just failing kids left and right, left and right, just failing kids. And it was ethnic studies because Allison was part of this initiative at Tinchanco Cubales out of San Francisco State, was working off of this board resolution to establish it in San Francisco. She needed practitioners, she needed teachers, classroom teachers to pilot it. And she asked me, she was like, okay, uh, we're starting ethnic studies. I told her no. The first answer was no, I'm doing my own thing. <laughs> and she gives me a couple of weeks. She comes back, she's like, hell no, you're doing ethnic studies. I'm like, I'm doing <laughs> ethnic studies. Right? And so then I got to be part of this cohort. And it was in that collective development of the class, kind of really studying theory. And then implementing it is where my, the practice, like, boom. Oh, shit, like, you've been doing it wrong. You know, and even I think collectively, like what we created was whack. It's like a survey history course. First we're going to mm. do Native Americans, then African Americans. And before the intro, like kids are like, and we're like, whoa, this is ethnic studies. Why am I not feeling it? Because, yeah, you know, starting with them, and that was like the biggest, most significant, like pedagogical development and shift. And then from there, it was like, oh, now you bring in the content, the history, the different movements and stuff, because you're kind of breaking down all the barriers and making connection, like people-to-people connection. It sounds so simple, but coming in 1998 was when I came into teaching, and USF was not USF as it is now, at least not UESJ
2: mm-hmm.
0: now, where mm-hmm. there was this clear, like long-standing practice of some master teachers and scholars. so. Not having that, we figured that out together, collectively. And it was the ancestors and elders and scholars in the books, and then our own reflective kind of practice. That's when ethnic studies in San Francisco kind of just took off. That gets referenced a lot. Because I know for a fact there's a lot of people doing incredible work. Mm -hmm. We just got linked with Stanford. That name just elevates everything. Mm -hmm. So then our crew really gets attention. Like more so than anybody else. Like Tucson really was, I think, what I was mm-hmm. looking at back mm-hmm. in the day. What are they doing? And so we had the benefit of them, whatever relationships we still had with Berkeley and Logan, we have been doing it for decades before. So we weren't start from scratch. And I think there was just a really great crew of really reflective teachers bringing in experience. But I think for me, ethnic studies was like I was coming into it this is a radical project.
5: Mm-hmm.
0: And when done right, will reach and move young people. I don't know if I answer your question in terms of what it is, but I think it elevates an understanding of racism to a broader system of imperialism, capitalism, white supremacy, and the relationships between all of that. And like how we get out is
5: through right through. Mm -hmm. Brother Art, I appreciate all the grounding historically and, it's making me reflect as an educator, the simple turn back to the self, the identity of the students, the connection to ourselves, to the historical and other sort of political content. When you talk about like, I guess the implications of ethnic studies, what it produces, what's the aim of the work as you see it now, knowing that there's due to your work and work Allison and others, right? Like now we're in this place of the state in an official sense, not just the city, but the state, not just the university, but I'm guessing federal, right? State will say, okay, you do ethnic studies in quotations, go, right? What does that produce and how is that project happening on the same ground, same rail as the actual project of ethnic studies? How do you see those differentiated or where do they meet?
0: Yeah, there's a lot of tension there. And I think, Uh, 2016, 2017, there was this uh, assembly bill, AB 2016, that was passed for practitioners and scholars to develop a model curriculum. It was at that moment that it became really clear that to do ethnic studies the way we saw it was going to like really butt heads with the way that the state needs it done. And who they're interacting with and mm-hmm. how that's informing their stance. And we're in the middle of that now. I think the power of ethnic studies comes from communities, right? comes from local neighborhoods, cities and towns throughout California. And people are demanding this, demanding this, demanding this. So the state had to respond. And then when we wrote the document, we caught hell. Oh my God. And really what it was is like, Developing lesson plans that were critical of the state of Israel. There's two lesson plans, two Arab American lesson plans that centered Palestinian experience, aspirations for liberation, and to be able to go back to their homeland, and were critical of the state. We got labeled as anti Semites. Mm-hmm. Of course, the other lesson plans that folks are calling out were lesson plans that were critical of police brutality and the root and the state and challenging anti-Blackness. And so it being really clear, they don't want ethnic studies, not in its true origin, purpose, and practice. But I think the momentum of it isn't allowing them to stop it. Because shortly after, AB, I don't know what it was, but AB 101 passes, which makes it a graduation requirement. So that one bill they had to develop to write the model curriculum as a resource for districts to use. And then the other one was to mandate it Mm -hmm. and make it a requirement. But that was vetoed before it was passed because the governor was like, hold up. This model curriculum needs to be acceptable to to Mm -hmm. certain elements of the community. And they basically gutted the whole thing that we created and then completely uh, went after us in the media. But. What came out of it was this, like we recently launched this national ethnic studies formation, Liberated Ethnic Studies Coalition a couple weeks ago. Kind of ironic, but we didn't go into writing this curriculum to do organizing, but because of the reaction and how we were treated, like the advisory committee was disbanded, the writers were dismissed. It actually propelled us into organizing mode. And we're actually much closer statewide than before we wrote this model curriculum. And so we're in the middle of this, I'd say struggle to keep you know, authentic critical ethnic studies as what is getting rolled out. And it seems like at every turn, there is opposition. It's interesting. Like there's the MAGA right, who's attacking CRT and 1619
1: Project, mm-hmm. Zined,
0: any DEI, work mm-hmm. including ethnic studies and then there's this kind of right wing of the jewish community there's zionists that are attacking the pro-palestinian mm-hmm. stance that we take of course i personally affirm and there's a diverse set of, of practitioner scholars involved with this but I, I individually affirm the right of the palestinian to self-determine and that they should have a right of return and Absolutely. that the analysis of settler colonialism is at the heart of their struggles right? But at the root of ethnic studies is an anti-colonial stance. Mm-hmm. Engaging and using that frame to look at a situation, for me, leads you to solidarity with Palestinians or solidarity with Filipinos or solidarity with First Nations here in the United States. Mm-hmm. Maybe some people would take a different conclusion. And I think what I'm trying to say is that it's not automatically like a pro-Palestinian position that ethnic studies takes, but because it's Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm
5: anti-colonial, I mean, I'm open
0: to the conversation, discussion, and dialogue, but I think what I'm trying to say, and apologies if it's confusing, but that's where the attacks against ethnic studies is coming from. Mm -hmm. Weird alliance of Zionists and Mm -hmm. MAGA, hard-right Christian fundamentalists,
4: It's really interesting and a part of our process of those of us who like went into ethnic studies. I think most of us who went into ethnic studies or any similar discipline went in with the idea that we are going to be like the educators we didn't have. We're going to give our young people the access and resources we didn't have. And it took me many years since me graduating with my degree in ethnic studies to really recognize that it's not Necessarily about teaching young people the content of what I learned in ethnic studies, because even there were big limitations like not learning about Palestinians in the Department of Ethnic Studies, right? Or engaging in that conversation. Also, I learned that a huge part of me living this liberatory life, for the lack of a better term, is actually engaging in the praxis, not just thinking that literacy, you know, reading, not just thinking that these things were going to free me, but actually learning the land, learning the plants, you know, engaging in different languages, getting uncomfortable. And so I'm really curious because we see what was happening with, you know, it's a it's a ban against ethnic studies it's a ban against what ethnic studies is you know could teach has the potential what i'm more curious about is for those of us who continue to run against those limitations how are we teaching our children like within our homes or you know the children that we work with how are we still engaging with them without centering literacy as the framework of learning You know, and I think that's one of the biggest things that I've been up against with myself in education. I spent so much time trying to push this, you know, learn this story, read this book, you know, you're going to learn so much until I have, you know, recognized with people who don't have great literacy but can grow fruit. (laughs) And I'm like, I can't grow no fruit. (laughs) And like, who is going to outlive, you know, one on this type of land? Especially with the differences in the exchanges we're experiencing yeah, with yeah. the pandemic, the price yeah. of food going up, the price of gas. So what real world tangible practices do you see yourself engaging with, you know, your children as a father, your wife, and even yourself? Because I feel like that is a form and a language of freedom, even when we see how the state responds to y- y'all trying to submit, you know, this application of ethnic studies, this curriculum.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I just got back from Santa Barbara and there's planning led by Chumash elders, like directly addressing what you're talking about, Jewel, in terms of there's so much disconnection, 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 disconnection from ourselves to ourselves, ourselves to the land, ourselves to our communities, family. And that is at the heart of the struggle ultimately, like you can learn how to read and write in that context. Like we were at a community garden planning for this healing event at an ancient fishing ground, Chumash fishing ground, that's now buried beneath this public park. I'm learning so much about how the struggles within the Chumash community, and I learned that the term Chumash is an externally imposed identity, like that hasn't even been around for the last more than a hundred years. Like there's like five different nations that just kind of like put underneath this, mm-hmm. and that's an example of disconnect, and the need to heal or to reconnect as a means of healing. And so that I think approaching how I raise my children, like they went out with me and I try to keep them as close as possible to the work and the messiness of it all. And I think the community really is so welcoming of the f- collective figuring. Like I don't know the answer. I just know where we're gonna find the answer. And I see little bits, little bits, little bits. And I think, like I said, if we have any significant practice that's worth anything now, that came from a long road of work that started many, many years ago, but it's that constant reflecting on how to do this thing. And what gets reaffirmed is doing it with community that's connected and collective, that is reflecting on the plans we set out to do and the action we take, and then making it better. And I think really what what it is, is faith. faith? Like I, I went through this weird thing about religion and faith. Like, I grew up in two churches, two Christian churches. Seventh-day Adventists, they go to church on Saturday. I don't know if you know. My mom's Seventh-day Adventist. My dad's Catholic. That thing's on Sunday. And I'd be in the church Saturday and Sunday. (laughs) He said that thing. I go to church on Saturday. And I'm like, cool. With my mom. And my aunt says, okay, get ready. I'm picking you up. We're going to church. I was like, I already went to church like, that's not the real church. You want to burn in hell? You got to come to the real church. So I go to church on Sunday. Oh, and I, mm-hmm. they come on Saturday. I tell my mom, no, I'm not going to your church. I'm going to real church tomorrow. I was like, shit, get you You going to church, so church. And so I have this weird thing with, I'm, oh, I'm over it now. I'm good with my Christian upbringing. I'm not Christian, but I have <laughs> determined for myself I'm a spiritual being. You know, I believe Mm -hmm. that we're part of this larger, larger whole. And I share all of that. Why part of the answer is faith in something that we cannot yet see based on what we're observing in the present like this right here. I've never shared physical space. I've met this is the first time I mean, you can just first time. I think I mean, you jewel and then Tiffany. This is really the first time we're really talking and I feel a deep connection. Mm -hmm. And I think that is part of how we're going to figure this shit out. And that my children, I do a lot of yelling. I still, from my own childhood, I'm carrying a lot of trauma. And I do a lot less yelling Mm -hmm. now. And that's why I don't want to promote myself as this perfect parent. But I say sorry to my children. Like when I get myself recomposed, that I'm practicing this self-reflection and acknowledging when I'm doing harm. Like that's one simple not simple, it's not simple, one small thing. And that that crosses over into how I am interacting with my fellow educators who are involved in this work mm-hmm. and how I'm connecting and relating with community out there. It takes uh, humility. It takes just acknowledging, like, like, I don't know what I'm doing a lot, mm-hmm. but I know. And that's that's where it comes. It's a faith thing that if we're figuring this stuff out together, we're going to figure it out. And we're going to advance this movement. Mm -hmm. We have a lot to build off of while also acknowledging we have a lot of work to do. But the whole thing with Sojari is a humbling reminder. Like you mess up, you make a mistake, and then you commit to doing better. And you have faith that people are going to be a part of figuring, refiguring checking you, mm-hmm. giving you feedback, and then you just keep coming back to the table to try to figure it out again, cycle repeat. And I think that's the best answer I can give Jewel because that's happening with my spouse, like how we talk to each other, how we model the love and mistakes or success and failure, how I am engaging my parents, my wife's parents, like that organizing work, I think a lot of times it gets compartmentalized. Like the principles that we say, this is what it is in the world, in the classroom. I say that because I was guilty of it. Like there's a disconnect between how I'm behaving out in the world and then in the home. And that needs to be addressed. Mm
1: -hmm. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah, doing, reflecting, not alone. And I think an example of that is this, how we started.
5: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I was gonna ask that, like it seemed to me Tiff, that the initial engagement between y'all for me was, I was gonna ask how is that an example of the praxis to your point, Jewel, of ethnic studies, right? Beyond the literature or the rendering of history. And I'm also someone who survived Christian socialization and it's disorienting your definition of faith. I heard it, it's like in the back of my head Beat into me, sometimes literally, right? Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Yeah. It's a powerful message that I hear us carrying today towards the future of this struggle, right? That is not clear defined. Endpoint should not probably be an endpoint. Faith is powerful. But to get that message from a place where we know there is trauma and violence, I think is so disorienting. And I kind of align that with the practice or the work of how we come to ethnic studies in general in these places that are literally premised on our undoing. But there our practices or our education preceded and I think will probably extend past these institutions, but it is disorienting to be in a place of our undoing where we get access to information that is supposedly aligned with our survival, with our autonomy. I don't know if you have Anything that jumps to your mind or heart around that contradiction or what you kind of see as the work going forward, given that reality, or maybe you don't see it that way, right? Maybe it's not how you would think things through, that's what's coming up for me.
0: I now take the position of take the best and leave the rest. There are some lessons from the Christian faith I will take, right? Do one to others loving thyself and thy neighbor. And I'm going to always put that in the context of colonial conquest and dispossession and erasure and committing to trying to remember when so much is lost and then recreating that. This is the real, I think, test of faith. I don't know. It's instinct. Is it whispers of the ancestors? Is it dreams that you're having that, you know, is that data? It is data. I mean, that's information. It's energy. You should actually be open to having that guide you, right? This real Western way of being, which wants you to squash all of that. I think an ethnic studies frame, right? An anti colonial frame, liberatory frame, like, okay, well, what does that mean? Well, the first half of my life, I'm trying to squash all of this that's happening inside as superstitiousness as whatever. But like at some point I think was able to reclaim that, like this real sense of a connection beyond the immediate physical realm that with my grandparents, like that's just fact, like that you have relationships. Mm-hmm. It's, it's very arrogant to think that you're the only ones here. Like human beings, Mm -hmm. or life in general we live in a very old i don't know what's the word place realm and this is just a snapshot of something that's been around a very long time and back to that arrogance that very now centered that's not tagalog that's not indigenous indigenous Mm -hmm. ways teach us to listen inward right and so i think Mm-hmm. That's where I see faith now. And when I listen inward, I see the young people that I teach. I see my own children. I see my parents as they, I see aging. This is a crazy thing. Like I'm pushing 50. I'll be 50 this year. Yeah. Once upon a time, I was I think less in touch with it. And as I get older and I see my parents age and I'm so blessed to have them alive, but in the not too distant future, they'll enter the ancestor realm and I'll become an, a real elder. That doesn't end there. There's a longer, bigger, and that's where the I guess the sense of spirituality and faith comes from in terms of how does that ground me? How does that sustain me? This work is not easy. There's so much like brutality and suffering and pain, and then it's being amplified mm-hmm. by technology. And then you start to feel like... Mm-hmm way overstimulated. And that leads often into really Mm -hmm. bad places, for me anyway, anxiety and kind of living in the state of heightened fear. And so then it goes, for me, the need to slow down, to filter, and to go back to this practice, I'll call it now a practice of faith and spirituality that is anchored to something that I'm just observing within myself that is very old, that my grandparents mm-hmm. talked about, that my family, you know, in a real syncretistic sense that though they were Catholic or Seventh-day Adventist, they were also talking about something beyond that, if that makes mm-hmm. any sense, so. Mm-hmm. It makes perfect mm-hmm. sense yeah. to some people <laughs> to and none at all to others. <laughs> you know?
2: Yeah, I yeah. was gonna say, you gotta excuse Kenji's because Kenji's uh lives ethnic studies. His people be excited about Maya Angelou on the quarter. And then <laughs> was she on the quarter or was she on the nickel?
5: She's on the the what is it called? The the half-cent, half the half cent, actually,
4: I think.
2: Oh, dang. <laughs> Okay, well, she was on a coin. And Kenji's people, I'm gonna say they'd be like, Yay! And then Kenjis will enact ethnic studies, and they'll be like, Yay, yeah, we did it, and he'll say, did we? You gotta uh, <laughs> be careful with him. I was thinking about ethnic studies, also, like, think about the Super Bowl, because I don't say <laughs> much, but I think a lot. You know, so people are like, I think ethnic studies is like cap, kneeling, you know, you are countering, mm. and then you get, but so, I'm, so look, look, work with me real quick. Yeah. I'm gonna slow down, yeah. like you said.
5: Uh-huh.
2: So then you get, if I use this example, I was thinking about like, there's the fight, the fight, the fight to be seen, the fight for it to be recognized, the fight for it to be accepted. Mm -hmm. So I'm like, is ethnic studies also us like on the stage, crip walking with nice boots and being accepted on a national platform? Like, is that also the desire is to shift from being the caps of the world to then becoming A performance, like what is that? So there's that one, and I have the questions about that. It's like the next direction of ethnic studies. So I think certain angles that we move in is kind of like we just, what happens when you are accepted by the very vehicle that has been running over you? And then the other part, like is the goal for you to drive it to be able to Well, there's also self-driving cars. But like
3: my my question is,
2: as we are talking about the next direction of this work, because then you move to this other realm. I think for so many years, we've been doing ethnic studies from this perspective of like, Maybe the curriculum and the like performance yeah, yeah. of it, if we're going to stay around this idea of performance.
4: Mm-hmm. But then
2: I think a lot of what just uh, and I are particularly finding in our work is there's something very different around the embodiment of ethnic studies that I believe connects with um, mm-hmm. Art Nelson. Part of what you were sharing, just in the latter, like what you were just talking about, mm-hmm. around the slowing down, around the awareness that we are not. In this alone, around the awareness that you don't necessarily go to church on Saturday and Sunday anymore, but the church is inside of you, or the spirit is inside of you, or the God is inside of you, or the, you know, and you have this intimate, profound connection to all living things, and your intuition is your guide, and your ancestors, dare I say, are your guide. It's like all of these areas where ethnic studies is and there's all these Uh, questions about where it's going and what it looks like and what I'm asking for you particularly to share with, there's a lot of folks in teacher ed programs and they have, I think, very critical decisions that they need to make um, around their practice. Some folks are leaving the field altogether and that's very specific and strategic and there are others who are struggling in a lot of ways. And I always believe that as folks become elders, as folks are moving into that, that we have a responsibility to share certain wisdom so that people don't have to re-experience the same type of pain and struggle that we had with the Jaris, with the Sydney's. Given what you have learned in your experiences along this pathway, like what wisdom do you believe you would share with prospective educators are those who are in teacher ed programs who this year particularly have a really important decision to make about the next few years of their lives. And I think this particular decision that they make will impact the next few years of their lives. What wisdom and advice do you have for these folks around particularly this
0: realm of ethnic studies?
2: Mm-hmm.
0: So I think the grand vision of ethnic studies is that we ethnic studies everything. But well, the goal isn't to become an ethnic studies teacher, though we need them. We need our scholars and our practitioners to develop that way of thinking with as many people as possible. And in that, really encouraging our students to go and figure out what their path is as they define it, whether they become CEO of some corporation, and I'm not pro-corporation or pro-capitalism at all but I understand that that's what we exist in or they become an attorney or doctor or cashier mm-hmm. behind a register mm-hmm. that they're informed with how they treat other people that the decisions that they make are informed with a criticality like rooted in love and respect yes. of life human life and plant and animal mm-hmm. life that's a huge shift and I think that's a huge part of the resistance like I was in the classroom yesterday where there was this TA in the ninth grade class. So this kid, maybe 16 years old, gender non-conforming, so moved by what they were just observing in the ethnic studies class, they were TA, read the book that they were reading, American Born Chinese, and told the teacher, hey, can I make a slide deck and teach the class and that's what I sat in on yesterday. And I was like, who is this young person? Weaving history, xenophobia, the root of it, its impact, its relationship to anti-Blackness, anti-Asian sentiments, dispossession of First Nations. And they're synthesizing all of this stuff with incredible like energy and enthusiasm. And I'm like, whatever this kid becomes or decides to become is going to be informed by this way of understanding the world and that we can like as teachers impact thousands millions of young people across racial spectrum or whatever and when they become whatever they become are making decisions that are shaped by this framework like that's significant and so for our young teachers I'm like One, shit is hard, you already know, you're already thinking of leaving. I left, after three years, I left. And to me, it is, it's like, if you wanted to go into teaching, if you remind yourself of why it is you went into teaching in the first place, go back to that and then find somebody else to develop your practice with. Because it's doing that in community and not even just a, a person to do that with, but then to find the communities that your young people are from and find meaningful connection because that's what's going to sustain you. That's what sustained me. I was going to leave of the profession a second time and then being brought into that collective to build ethnic studies. That's really what kind of unlocked it. And so I think if there's wisdom, it's you can't do this alone. You've tried, how's that working? Exactly, mm-hmm. so there's going to be other people at your school, if not your school, at the adjacent school, and for sure in the communities of the young people that you serve that you can plug into you got to have this faith, this sense of larger purpose otherwise no matter where you go. Like there's a lot of folks going into HR or going into corporate or into tech, leaving education and I'm like for what? And I think that's at the root of effective practice. Like if we can't answer for our students, you know, when they ask why are you making us do this? Why math? Math for what? Ethnic studies for what? History for what? If we can't answer that question, then like, we have a lot of work to do. But I think once we answer that question in a meaningful way for them, I mean, starting with yourself, that's where you'll find the answers. I don't have the answer for you. I have a lot of non-answers, which might lead you to the answer. <laughs>
4: it's a very ethnic studies thing to have no answer. <laughs>
0: more questions but then you add when it's done right you ask any student in an nothing studies class like why do you like that class it's a relationships it's a connection with other people that they thought they never would have anything in common with oh that teacher they helped me it's like very Mm -hmm. clear Mm -hmm. in terms of what is effective and what's not and i think it's easy because of our conditioning our lack of the ways that our teachers are prepared to teach that really set you up to fail, you know? And so the lift needs to be done with as many other people as possible. And so to me, that's the role of the artists. That's the role of the cultural workers. And yeah, eventually, like, not eventually, like if you can be up on the Super Bowl halftime show stage, great. And your responsibility to the places that you come from. To me, I'm less and less about, no, not that way, this way. And more about, okay, that way and this way. And being in conversation still with a real sense of awareness, critical awareness of your impact. You can measure it, you know, like what you're putting out in the world. You can measure the impact of failing a child. You could observe the impact of, you know, yeah, assigning grades to your students as an example, or the impact of the lyrics that you put out and the music you put out in the world, and the art, the action, it's all energy. I think I've had some positive impact, not perfect, but if it gets better, it's because I'm reflecting on it. And I think sometimes to the degree where, I, because of that whatever colonial conditioning, like, or maybe it's Catholic condition, you really go at yourself. And so trying to get to a place where you're self-critical without being so invested in, I don't know, self-crucifixion, you know. Again, I don't know if I'm answering your questions. I do appreciate just being able to talk with you three. And I've never been asked these types of questions in relation to ethnic studies and practice or allowed to just go. So if this is at all valuable to anybody, great because right? it's definitely valuable to me <laughs> right now. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a big practitioner proponent of therapy and beneficiary of therapy.
2: Definitely. That's the way it should be. I feel very healed, Art Nelson, from this conversation. I feel mm. connected
5: to you in a
2: way that I have not mm-hmm. ever. And so I'm grateful. I'm grateful for age. I'm so glad I'm, I'm Got to live and be older and yeah. uh, have an opinion and be able to do things differently. And, you know, as we get out of here, I think what's most important, you know, you said something that was really powerful and you said it quickly, which was that you apologize to your
4: children. Mm-hmm. 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 When I talked to a
2: number of educators, one of the most groundbreaking questions I ask educators in my teacher ed courses in your experiences in K through twenty. I just say, hold it up on your hands, the number of teachers who have ever apologized to you. And people rarely have to use more than two fingers. And I asked them to think about that in relationship to their practice as well. And uh, when I was on that bar train with Sydney, I said, I'm sorry. I said, I'm sorry that the framework that I was using to educate at the time could not capture, could not. Even recognize or see the wholeness of who you are. Apologize Mm. that I believed in that Mm -hmm. project at one point. Yeah, yeah. I have a lot of grief around that. I think in closing, I want to ask if there's anything you want to say to Mm. Jari or the Jaris of the world. Yes, yeah. As you are, you know, in such an elevated place in your life.
0: Yeah. So Jari, you know, Mm. I'm not perfect. And where and when I failed you as a teacher, I sincerely, deeply apologize. But I'm also very excited about hearing where you are and look forward to being a uh, partner in this work, in this life at this time. Antoine is another student. And there are many students that I recognize. Yeah, exactly what you were saying, Tiffany, within the ways that I was developed and the place that I was at very uh, much not able, right? Not able, not equipped to be the teacher that you all needed. But from that, I think with every failure, every fall are hard lessons. I'm sorry, you all had to be mm-hmm. the ones to experience that and I on, in a different way.
5: Mm-hmm.
0: But. I'm committed. I'm committed to keep on growing the practice. Like you said, I'm in an elevated place in a position that is significantly impacting current and future teachers. And so these lessons are benefiting and will benefit teachers and young people alike for years to come. That is a commitment, a promise, and something you can objectively measure, right? Yeah, that's a tough thing. Apologizing is something we got to practice and be committed to. And then that's the other thing about faith, about living a, a spiritual existence. There is, there is so much unknown and yet there's enough that is known for me that I understand deeply and know deeply that compels me to keep going in the direction that we're going. So, hey, and I would like to cook for you.
4: Who, me? All of us. First, the
0: Jari. <laughs> That is an expression of uh, or one of my love languages to cook for my folks. Mm-hmm. And to you, Jewel and Tiffany and just Yeah. I was gonna say that before that we, <laughs> we dropped that. Like,
4: question. Like, I'm a Tiffany, what? <laughs> yeah, I don't
0: know. That's 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 really like the coming together of so much life and energy and connection to the past and to people in a very, very focused, immediate way. Mm-hmm. So, mm. and I can go any direction. I can go plant based. I can go crazy carnivorous, uh, <laughs> pescatarian.
4: Look at you, Good. flexitarian pig. <laughs> I like I, this. you said flexitarian. I said pet, yeah, I said
0: I pescatarian, said. but I, I'm interested in what a flexitarian is. Flex
4: it means you flexible,
0: okay. <laughs> flexible <laughs> <laughs> you
4: are amenable, but... I am flat. And,
0: and, <laughs> and that is what an educator should be. Yes. An ethnic studies educator yes. should be adaptable mm-hmm. to the conditions in front of them
1: mm-hmm.
0: and the young people and the different experiences and sensibilities and cultures that they bring. It seems so simple. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah.
0: It seems so like. I don't want to say easy, but once you have that focus, maybe that's the wisdom too. Like, really get to know yourself. Mm -hmm. So you can really get to know the students in front of you. Be committed to that. Like, how can you even teach others if you don't even really know who the hell you are? That's another ethnic studies foundational thing that ironically gets Mm -hmm. lost, right? Mm -hmm. In myself, Mm -hmm. always starting with myself but i've observed with other teachers and parents and elders and folks that you want and need to be wise enough to do the right thing so i'm all for redemption i'll say that Mm -hmm. and so these young teachers that are struggling are probably beating themselves up too a lot in terms of like i can't do this i'm doing damage i'd rather not do this and do damage and just leave but we need you all so Mm -hmm. If that's wisdom, that that's what I'll leave with.
2: Mm-hmm. To those things we say, Ashe, we appreciate you. Ashe. Art Nelson Concordia came and dropped a bunch of dimes, some Maya Angelou quarters on us today. and We appreciate you so much. We're so grateful for the time that, that you so spent good. with us. Give it up one more time, y'all, for Art Nelson Concordia. Appreciate you, brother. Thank you,
0: Tiffany. Thank you, Jewel. Thank you, Kenja.
2: My, my, my. We learned so much today with such amazing guests. I'm thinking back to how sacred the work was that Lorenzo spoke of and what it enlivened for him and the histories that were awakened when he was able to pronounce, to declare so much in his indigenous or native tongue. Thinking back to Manny and this idea of trusting relationships and how that showed up in our conversation with Art Nelson. For us as educators to be able to go back and think about the moments in our practice that we're not the most proud of, where we weren't the most experienced educators, where we caused harm. And that even through an ethnic studies lens, when we think about self-determined people, what it means to restore, what it means to be accountable to those we may have harmed, to the harm that's been imposed upon us by our participation in schools, and all the accountability work that is necessary for cultural perpetuity and the restoration of our communities. I feel so blessed. I'm grateful to everyone and excited to do this again. See y'all next time. this episode of drawing from the well brought to you by the youth wellness movement i'm your host tiffany marie this podcast is co-produced by yours truly and john reyes with music by my boy jansen v drawing from the well is supported by community response of education continue the conversation at youthwellness.com